The text that we will give special attention to this afternoon comes from James 3, the verses 18 through... Rather, the verses 13 through 18. And let's turn there again also this afternoon and read those verses one more time so that they may be fresh in our mind for the sermon. So James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So far. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we love being right. Isn't it just great to be right? Whether it's an argument with our spouse or with one of our colleagues or maybe a debate with a professor or a dispute about politics, we all just love being right. And if we can, without being too blatantly rude, we like to flaunt our rightness. It's what any kid says, see, I told you so. And it's what we as adults communicate all the time, even if we're a little more subtle than that. Oftentimes we also like politicians who are aggressive and who say it just like it is, and we don't mind so much if it sometimes comes across offensively to our opponents. Sometimes this attitude of we're right and you're wrong can also be characteristic of a church if we want to make sure that everyone knows how right we are and how wrong others are about whatever it is, theology, music, evangelism, or something else. And if we're honest about it, we have to admit that we often care more about showing others how right we are than actually persuading them to see the truth and to live the truth for themselves. Test yourself on this. Which scenario sounds better to you? One in which you disagree and you prove someone else to be wrong and show them the truth, or one in which someone else proves you to be wrong and shows you the truth? In both cases, it's cause for rejoicing. Someone comes to the knowledge of the truth. But I think most of us would much prefer the first situation to prove someone else wrong. And there are probably a number of reasons why we are this way. At least one of them is that it inflates our ego. If we are right and other people are wrong, then we think we must be wiser, smarter, more informed, more perceptive, more understanding than them. Well, in the verses of our text, James addresses this desire to be right and to show others how right we are, to show off our wisdom and our understanding. So he says already in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. It's not exactly the seminary's favorite Bible verse, 
They won't put that on their website anytime soon. But he says it's not because teaching isn't a noble thing to do or to aspire to. Paul actually says it's a noble thing to aspire to. But because the presumption to teach others can easily follow from the assumption that I must be a very wise and knowledgeable person. It's that same pride and self-righteousness. And James is especially addressing a tendency in his day, which is equally true in ours, for these people who think that they are wise and understanding to have a habit of criticizing others. It happens so easily, doesn't it? If we allow ourselves to believe that we are wiser, more understanding, more sensible than other people in the church, we divide up into these different cliques and we begin to criticize each other and to think very highly of ourselves for being aligned with the right political party or church party, whatever it is. And then if we let this run its course, we quickly assume the role of teachers and even judges. So James says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. He's essentially repeating what the Lord Jesus himself taught us on the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not, lest you be judged, for with the measure you judge others, you will also be judged. Then, in the rest of verses 1 through 12, James gives us some good reasons to reconsider whether we really are all that wise or understanding. He asks, how have you, who think you're so wise, how have you been doing in controlling your tongue? Mankind has tamed every species of animal on the planet, and yet we can't seem to control our own tongues. Nobody has a perfect record there. He says in verse 2, if anyone doesn't stumble in his words, he's a perfect man. So to get to his point then, if that's how well we're doing with our tongue, then perhaps we should put the brakes on our desire to quickly become one another's teachers. So then he's laid the whole issue on the table, and then he asks his readers directly in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? And he's not asking for a show of hands. He gives instead a simple exhortation. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, actions will speak louder than words. The good, in that phrase, good conduct, can also be translated beautiful or attractive or winsome. So he says, if you're truly wise, then you'll have a beautiful and attractive way of life. So let people see that instead of just hearing your words. You might remember the Lord Jesus calls us to the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the salt of the earth and the light on a hill, so let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, it really is good to be wise. We're called to be wise. But the primary means of expressing that wisdom will be with our lifestyle and not just our words. When we're wise in that way, then it gives God the glory and it draws people to him. By a winsome life, we make the Christian truth beautiful. The Bible elsewhere speaks of adorning the gospel by our good works. And that's true wisdom, a lifestyle that's beautiful to God and man that even unbelievers can appreciate and respect. And the second part of the exhortation is also beautiful and surprisingly obvious when you think about it. Let him show, his good con- show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. 
The truly wise are not those who are aggressively insisting on their own opinions or who can make all manner of complex arguments, but those who are humble, whose deeds are good, whose attitude towards others is gentle and sympathetic. And when you think about it, of course, that's what wisdom looks like. But then we realize that simple command is actually very convicting, isn't it? A winsome lifestyle, gentle words, good deeds. It's so obvious when you think about it that that's what true wisdom looks like. But so many of us, when we read this, we quickly recognize that we have really failed there. So this simple exhortation quickly reveals the true character of our wisdom. And that prepares us for where James goes next. In verse 14, he says, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Notice he doesn't do any accusing here. He doesn't say, you think you're wise, but you're not really. He just says, if. So, if the Holy Spirit shows us that we are who he's describing, then he calls us to measure ourselves against that standard and to recognize that if we don't measure up, there may be other things going on in our hearts. And if that's the case, he says, don't allow yourselves to be fooled. That phrase, do not boast, it seems to be referring to that same attitude of, I'm right and you're wrong, that he has just finished speaking about. So James is saying, if your attitude, your walk of life, isn't characterized by that attractive way of life, that humility, that gentleness that comes from true wisdom, then don't allow yourself to become puffed up to assume, no matter how tempting it is for whatever reasons you have, that you're still rather wise. If there's selfishness and envy in your heart, then do not believe that you're wise. It's not the truth. And that's what he says explicitly in in verse 15. He says, This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. We can notice a sort of ascending order there in terms of opposition to God. The attitude is earthly, meaning it doesn't come from a regenerated heart, but from our old, corrupt natures. It's sensual, or you could also translate that carnal, meaning it's something that properly belongs to animals, not to human beings made in the image of God. And it's demonic, because it's rooted in that same pride and self-seeking way that the demons themselves live, live by. And that's the fundamental point for us this afternoon. That envy... That rivalry, that belongs to the old nature. It belongs to the people that we used to be before we knew Christ. It's what we all would be without Christ, and it's what runs this world wherever Christ is not known. It's the sin that Christ came to this earth and died for. It's the sin that he took on himself on the cross. Apart from Christ, it shouldn't surprise us to see that envy, rivalry, and hatred live in the hearts of all men and women because all have made themselves enemies of God. But we are not apart from Christ. Christ took that sin on Himself to the cross and He crucified it there. We should have died for our envy and our hatred and our selfishness, but He died there for us. And He rose from death and if we are in Him, we too can have nothing more to do with that envy and rivalry and selfishness that used to dominate our lives. That old way, 
it has no place left in our hearts. It has no place in our personal lives, and it has even less of a place within the body of Christ, between those who call themselves brothers and sisters, or between one church and another. It happens, and it happens always on both sides, but it has no place in God's body, in Christ's body, and we must put it to death. We must not give one inch to that impulse of envy and rivalry and selfishness that does exist in each one of our hearts. And James offers us one final warning to that effect in verse 16. He says, Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. To those who give in to that selfishness and that envy, that impulse that exists in their hearts, they ultimately find themselves in chaos and it's not pretty. It's the kind of thing that leads to church breakdowns and splits and all kinds of family breakdowns as well. Wherever envy and rivalry find a place in the hearts of God's people, in the long run, you can be sure that it will produce all manner of evil consequences. Sinful sinful motives at the root level of the heart will lead to all kinds of sinful actions at the fruit level. The bitterness, the family feuds, the disorder and the chaos that all springs from that same source that envy and rivalry that exists in the heart. But it has no place among us. And so James calls us instead to true wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above, that belongs to that heart that has been washed clean and made new in Christ. Verse 17, he says, But the wisdom that is from above is first of all pure. It's important to notice that that short phrase, first or first of all. Purity or blamelessness is set apart from all other qualities because if we're not pure, then it really doesn't matter what we are. Impurity or wickedness plus any other quality, no matter how attractive it is, is still hypocrisy. A kind person who's living in sin and refuses to put it out will be no better for his or her kindness nor a smart person from his or her intelligence. Wisdom, true wisdom, makes it its first priority to remove every hint of impurity, every hint of sin. And wisdom recognizes, as we saw this morning, that our battle is primarily against sin and primarily against the sin of our own hearts. So the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. And that's obviously the opposite of that selfishness and jealousy that James has just finished talking about. Instead of seeking to stir up divisions, true wisdom would rather make friends, would rather humbly persuade others to agree in the truth. When we're motivated by envy and selfishness, then we enjoy being right and others being wrong. But true wisdom doesn't enjoy the other person being wrong. It's like love where it's described in 1 Corinthians 13. If you remember that long list that Paul gives, love is patient, love is kind. One of those qualities is that love doesn't delight in evil or rejoice at wrongdoing. And that's what it means to be peaceable. Love doesn't want the other person to be wrong. Love would much rather have the other person agree and to join us in doing the right thing. And after all, isn't that how God in Christ has treated us? We were His enemies. He had every right to cast us into hell. 
But even then, even while we were his enemies, hating him and hating one another, he made peace with us. And those who trust in him desire to become like him. So instead of aggravating and alienating the other person, the true wisdom which comes from God rather seeks to make peace, seeks to come to agreement with the other person. It doesn't stir up controversy, but brings people together. And that's exactly what James himself was so well known for in New Testament times. That's one of the reasons why he always had such an honorable reputation among probably more than any of the other apostles. In Acts 15, we read about how James made peace between the elders and the apostles at a time when the church was very divided over what to do about the Gentiles. It was a very difficult and tense situation with no shortage of debate. And no doubt some would have been tempted to call out to the other side, ah, you legalists, or on the other side, oh, you liberals, or to call off the whole matter and to go their separate ways and never speak to each other again. But James, he listened to Peter, and then he gave wise advice to everyone there so that when he finished, it seemed good to the brothers to do exactly as he had recommended. In Acts 21, we can read about another situation where Paul visits Jerusalem with some Gentiles, and the first person he meets is James, giving him some advice, saying, take certain precautions so you don't offend people unnecessarily. That's who James was. He was a peacemaker. And because of this, he had a very honorable reputation, not just among Christians, but even among Jews. His, name was, his nickname was James the Just, And no doubt that reputation did much good in softening the anger of the Jews against the Christians and perhaps even bringing some to consider the claims of Christ. That's also what we read so many times over in the book of Proverbs. Remember that in New Testament times, the only Bible that they had was the Old Testament. And James had a reputation as a very wise man, so surely he would have known the book of Proverbs and probably even had it memorized And this point, it's so often repeated in the book of Proverbs that you just can't miss it. Just from the chapter that we read in in chapter 15, there are several verses that make this point repeatedly. Verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Or verse 4, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Or verse 18, a wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. Or verse 28, the heart of the righteous man studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. Think of what James has just said about the tongue. And isn't this exactly what the Lord Jesus commanded so many times over at the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed, he said, are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Or, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. That's the attitude of the regenerate person. He doesn't desire to alienate his opponents or to make them look stupid, but he desires that they come to a knowledge of the truth, just as God in Christ desired for us. Next, James says that true wisdom is gentle and willing to yield. You could also translate that as considerate and reasonable. When we get into an argument, whether it's with our spouse or with our kids or a political argument or a debate with an unbeliever, 
how quickly don't we become unreasonable when we could concede a point that someone's making and yet we don't want to, we refuse to. And then it's no longer I care about you and want you to know the truth, but simply I'm right and I don't want to listen to it anymore. James says that true wisdom is gentle and reasonable. Paul says in Philippians 4, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The wise are not stubborn or inflexible, but gentle and reasonable. God in Christ reached out to us where we were, and we didn't want to be understood by Him, but He made Himself understood to us. We were wrong, but He was willing to correct us in love. As Christians, we should also always seek to understand one another, to reach out to one another where we are. If correction is needed, we should correct gently. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we should speak the truth in love. It seems that so often we only know how to do one or the other, speak the truth or show love. To do one or the other is easy, but to do both is hard, but that's what we're called to do. Another uh, way to translate the phrase willing to yield would be deferential, meaning that you don't consider yourself better than others. It's what Paul says in Romans 12, consider others to be better than yourselves. Next, wisdom is also full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy obviously means that the wise person isn't interested in gloating at his opponents the way that people do when they're motivated by jealousy and rivalry. If the wise person succeeds in persuading someone of the truth, then he doesn't rub it in or make the other person look dumb, but is merciful, patient, gracious, recognizing that we too were sinners in rebellion. We too needed God to come and correct us, and recognizing that if we have anything at all to offer, it's only what's been given to us by God. And good fruit gets at what is already said in verse 13, that our lives match our words. Then finally, James ends this list with two words that sound similar in the Greek and probably to help make this list memorable so people could actually memorize these, which is not a bad idea. He first says, the wisdom from above is without partiality, which means it's not loyal to one particular party or another, Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, followers of this theologian versus followers of that theologian, or friends of this person instead of that person, one family versus another, one group in the church versus another. Wisdom doesn't take sides. Obviously, wisdom has its convictions, but it's not unfairly for or against any party but judges all things by the truth of God's word, knowing that we will all stand before the great judge on a level plane. Finally, he says that the wisdom from above is without hypocrisy. It doesn't say one thing and then do another, and it doesn't say one thing and mean something else. Then James finishes this exhortation with what sounded like it might have been a proverb, and with this proverb, he gets at the heart of what our attitude should be about as we learn to practice this wisdom and grow in the image of God. Just as God desired a harvest of righteousness from us, we desire a harvest of righteousness from our fellow brothers and sisters. And that's what this proverb gets at. He says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The point being, that's the only way 
to get that fruit or harvest of righteousness. And that is what we're called to do, whether it's in the way we raise our children or work together with our spouse or serve our communities. Our goal is always to see that same harvest of righteousness that God in Christ has been seeking from us. Our goal is to, ser- to bring our neighbors to love and serve and obey the Creator God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're arrogant or self-serving or full of rivalry and envy, then we only drag the name of God through the mud. But if we're peaceful and we sow the Word of God in a peaceful manner, then we will see that harvest of righteousness. So may the Holy Spirit continue to work that desire in each of our hearts, reminding us over and over again that this is how God in Christ has treated us. He was merciful. He was humble. He's been extremely patient and peaceable towards us. May He shape us into that image, the image of the most wise God and our most humble Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing from Psalm 37, stanzas 12.